0: coming off an evening last night. It was a great evening. I trust you were with us with our Youth of Grace dinner theater. It's always a wonderful time. So we're grateful for all of you who participated in that and helped with that. Most certainly the, the, uh, the Yagers that were part of that. It was a great time. Let me ask you please as we come to the scripture to bow to pray. Father in heaven, we come now to your word. I pray that you would help us That we wouldn't uh, just ho hum this book and uh, opportunities to um, think about it. But Father, we would take this as a great advantage to us as people who are believers in Christ to hear from you, to read of that which is true. Give us grace, I pray, to believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn uh, to 1 Timothy in chapter 1. I want to read verses 12 through 17. 1st Timothy chapter 1, please, verse 12. Please hear the Word of God. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponents. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory... Forever and ever. Amen. And remember, Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. Uh, he writes to Timothy uh, about how the church is to live, the church is to behave as church. Remember in chapter three, he he lays out his purpose. He says, he says, I I, I come, I I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, that is, as the household of God, those uh, who belong to this family, God is Father, God is Head, and this place in which this group of people among whom God actually dwells. The household of God is the church of the living God. He's alive. He hears. He sees. uh, He acts. He knows the church of the living God. And he says, I want you to to know who you are, that's who you are, the household of God, the church of the living God. And I want you to realize what you're to do, what you're charged with, what you're entrusted with. And he says that you are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, entrusted to the church is the truth, the truth about God, the truth about us, the very gospel of life itself. And he says, this has been given to you, church, and you're to support it, you're to guard it, you're to live it, you're to display it, you're to proclaim it. You have it. I've I've given it to you. And now, 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 now." be faithful in all of this. And so, as he lays out for Timothy how the church is to behave, everything that we're to do and to be uh, is Related to or informed by, dictated by really who we are and what our mission is, what we're to do as the pillar and buttress of the truth. So it doesn't surprise us, remember from last Sunday, that when Paul begins his letter, he speaks to Timothy about those who are teaching a different doctrine. Church, if you're to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, then beware of anyone who's preaching a doctrine different than the apostles taught. And so he speaks to Timothy about that and he says, I want you to tell them to stop doing that. Because you see, uh, they're missing it. And if people follow after them, then they'll miss what Paul refers to as the stewardship of God, which is by faith, which means the administration of God's plan, the, the plan that God is laying out for humanity, the, problem, uh, the, 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 the uh, plan that God is, has instituted, if you will, to save sinners, to, to rectify all that was lost because of Adam, to, to reconcile people to himself. And he says, if you get it wrong, then you'll miss that, which is everything. And so he he lays out, beware of these ones who are false teachers. Now, in the section we've just read, what Paul does is say, I'm a prime example of what I've just said to you. I'm a prime example that if people follow that which is wrong, they miss the administration of God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption. They miss it. But you see, if... Finally, they get it, and the truth here is made manifest to them. Then you see, and they believe, then you see, they are reconciled to God. It's, it's all true. And so he uses himself as this, as this prime uh, example of everything that he's just laid out to Timothy uh, thus, thus far. And notice how he begins. He begins by giving God thanks. Now, uh, he gives God thanks doesn't give Timothy thanks, doesn't give the church thanks, we give God thanks, we give thanks to him, to God. And the reason we give thanks to God is because he realizes that he's received something from God, first of all, for which he's thankful, for which he likes. We're rarely thankful for receiving that which we don't like. It's hard to be thankful for something that we don't like, that we don't prefer to have. So clearly he prefers to have that which God has done for him and given to him. So he gives God thanks Because he likes it. And secondly, we're prone to give thanks for that which we know that we could not have gotten for ourselves. If somebody gives you a gift and you go, "Mm, I could have gotten that for myself, that's one thing. But if they give you something and you realize that you could have never had that, apart from that gift that they've given to you, and it's something that you really like, then you're very thankful. And and what has happened in the life of Paul, you see, is he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So what he's thankful for is the fact that, that God, according to our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus himself, has judged Paul faithful and appointed him to the service, that is, of being an apostle. And when Paul uses this expression that he's thankful because um, uh, uh, he has judged Paul faithful, uh, appointing him to this service, Paul isn't saying that I was appointed because I am inherently faithful. Because everything that, that, that Paul talks about points in the opposite direction. He's thankful because he realizes that God has entrusted him with his gospel. And yet Paul says, there's no good reason why God should have done that. There's no good reason why God should have considered me at all to be faithful. And he lays this out. And he says, first, he's given me strength. He said, I didn't have the strength. I was too weak in order to be a faithful woman. Yet God gave me strength. In order to do this, you remember Paul's expression, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, if you just leave, I can do all things. I've just lied to you. But if you add, through Christ who strengthens me, then I've told you the truth. Because I've realized that I can't do all things, but through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all the things that he's called me to do. So he knows he needs the strength of God. So he isn't saying that that God uh, uh, appointed me to this task because he knew that I was inherently faithful. And if he gave it to me, I could do it. And then he strengthened me. And I'm thankful for that. And not only that, Paul says, I'm unworthy for all of this. Because look at my life before I gave no indication at all that I was a faithful one. I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent of Jesus and the church. She was a blasphemer. Paul was part of the group called the Pharisees in ancient Israel, the separated ones, and, and if you're a Bible reader, you know a bit about them, and you know that Jesus often came after them and attacked them uh, because they thought themselves to be self-righteous. But one of the incidents that took place between Jesus and Pharisees on a particular occasion when Jesus was casting out demons was that a group of Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub or the spirit of Satan. There's a sense in which they said about Jesus that not only was he not from God, but he was from the devil. Now how much more blasphemous can you get? And Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I spoke against Jesus. I said that he really wasn't from God. I said he wasn't the Son of God. I said that he wasn't truth that you could rely upon. That he wasn't the way, the truth, and the life as he said that he was. And I was trying, if you read in Acts... In chapter 26, he said, not only was I a blasphemer, but I tried to get others to blaspheme as well. My goal in imprisoning them and putting them to death and all of that was so that they would say about Jesus the same things that I was saying about Jesus. I not only blasphemed, but I wanted others to do the same. And he said, that's what my life was like. Does that look like someone faithful? That God would say, oh, you're faithful. (laughs) I'll choose you to be an apostle. Uh, And then he said, not only that, I was a persecutor of the church. You know, I I literally imprisoned people. I literally had people killed. We know when Stephen was killed, was stoned to death... Saul of Tarsus was there. In fact, those who threw the stones at Stephen came to Saul of Tarsus and they laid their coats down because that was a bit encumbering. So they would have to take their coats off so they could throw well. And so they took their coats off and they laid them at the feet of Saul which meant that he was the executioner. And, And so you see, people would have feared Saul of Tarsus like a Jew in Germany would fear the Gestapo. That's the kind of man. He was not a man faithful to God. At the moment in time when he was appointed by God to be the apostle, it wasn't because he had shown himself to be faithful and he had proven himself. And he said, No, no, what's amazing to me, the reason I thank God is because I can't have any, I, don't ima- I can't imagine at all why he would have thought me to be faithful to this ministry to which he's appointed me. I'm happy that he did, but I'm just flabbergasted that he did because I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. The Greek word for insolent is the word that we get our word hubris, meaning arrogant. proud and in fact in the original uh, English actually of that word hubris there meant to be someone who was violently contemptuous in other words had a hatred and therefore came after people with great violence and so in some versions even of the New Testament translations I think even in the NIV he's referred to as a violent man not just simply insolent but a violent man and that he was and Paul is saying, I can't think of any reason why God would have ever thought me to be faithful to this when he appointed me to this service. So I thank him. He gave me strength. I couldn't have done it without him and his strength that he did in the context of my own sinful weakness. And so Paul isn't saying, hey, I was faithful, therefore I got it. He was saying, I can't imagine other than God's mercy and grace, as we'll see. As we'll see in a minute. But, but think about this. I don't know. I've often thought of what it must have been like for Timothy to meet Paul and travel with him and then get letters from him about how he's supposed to run the church and, and, and all of that. I have friends older than myself that I've written to from time to time over the years are called and they've written me about things in the church and that's been pretty cool. But this is Paul. And, and you wonder about Timothy, what he must have thought. Because he didn't know... By his own experience, that Paul that was being, that Paul described himself as a blasphemer. He never knew Paul as a blasphemer. He never knew Paul as a persecutor of the church. He he never knew Paul in in this sort of violent behavior and insolence and and hatred and contempt towards Christ. All he knew of Paul was the love that Paul had for the church and the love that Paul had for Christ and all of that. And then he reads about this. And don't you think he he makes this comparison in his head going, wow, I've heard about this. I just can't imagine it. You want to be like that? Don't you want to be that person that reflects back over your life before you came to faith, and then say, "I don't know that person anymore," and and people who may have known you before you came to faith to be able to say. I can't believe that was that person. And you say, well, you know, I grew up in the church. You know, my testimony, I can't believe not believing in Jesus. I can't remember not believing in Jesus and all that sort of thing. But yet I can look over the course of my life, stuff that you don't know. Only I know. And I say, wow. I'm so different today than I was. And I think, oh. But see, that's the point. And then what does that lead us to? It doesn't lead us to pride and arrogance and say, oh, look at my position now. It says, oh, I thank God who has given me strength because he counted me faithful to believe and to know this gospel, to be entrusted with it, to take it to my friends, to, to live it out, to, to teach it to our children and all of that. He's entrusted me with this gospel. Ah, ah Okay? That's that's the gist of this here. Because Paul goes on to say, he says, because listen, he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Now, Now often, as we read through the scripture, we find these two words, grace and Mercy. Together and the same paragraph, the same sentence. It's it's very rare that you see one without the other, unless a particular point is being made. But, but mercy and grace, even in the in the in the profession of faith we used this morning in Ephesians chapter two, uh, God in His who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. You see mercy and grace together, and, and we often take them as, as as fairly synonymous because we realize that that each of them says that the greater is giving to a lesser uh, one worthy is giving to that who is unworthy and so we get that sense and, and that which is received is received from one who is, who is sovereign over mercy and grace in other words that the, the giver isn't compelled to give mercy and grace it's something that the giver simply gives uh, the merciful one needs it and can't get it that's why he needs mercy and the one who needs grace needs it but, but, but won't ask for it because he's unworthy of it and all of that and so mercy and grace we see that very sense and even And as the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 9 about God, he said, of God, God says, I will give mercy to whom I will give mercy and compassion to whom I will give compassion. And we see that that God's mercy is unconstrained in the sense that we can't demand it. It's given freely by Him. But since there are two words, mercy and grace, They must mean something a little different. They must convey something a bit different to us, else the language would be utterly uh, redundant. And and so what's the difference here? What's the nuance? Why two words? Why one, mercy and grace? Why does Paul speak of receiving mercy and receiving grace? Well, mercy by its very nature, the word meaning is that it's the kindness of one shown to another who is in distress. Mercy is the kindness of one shown to another who is in distress. In other words, mercy is, 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 is issues from a person seeing another person in misery. It's moved by the plight of that other person. You say, oh, I feel for them, and thus I, I desire to, to help them. Oh, it's sovereign in the sense that you don't have to necessarily. But, 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 but you see someone in their distress, and so you give mercy. And so when Paul speaks of himself or as us of us receiving the mercy of God, it means that God in his love and his kindness looks to us and, and sympathizes with our weakness and, and thus comes to us in our need. Grace, on the other hand, emphasizes the unworthiness of the recipient. Grace recognizes the unworthiness of the recipient. Mercy recognizes the misery, the need of the recipient, the helplessness, the hopelessness of the, of, of the person. But, 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 but grace emphasizes the unworthiness of the recipient. So Paul says he's received mercy, he was in need and God came to help him. And he received grace, that is, he was unworthy of the help. And that led then to all that transformed him. Now it's fascinating because Paul lists two reasons why he was a recipient of mercy. There's two reasons why the mercy of God came to him. He said, I was in, in helplessness and hopelessness and all of that, and yet I received mercy for two, uh, two reasons. The first, notice in verse, um, well, the middle of verse 13, he says, But I received mercy because. I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then notice in verse 16, he said, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Two reasons why Paul was given mercy. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought God's mercy was given sovereignly. So do so, so you, you mean that Paul was able to hold these things up to God and say, now give me mercy? And, of course, the answer is no. Still, this mercy was sovereign. But Paul is saying, I was hopeless, I was helpless. So he came to me, God did, uh, in, my, in my need. Notice how he puts it in verse, middle of verse 13. He said, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, when Paul speaks of it is ignorance. We realize that he doesn't mean I didn't know anything about Jesus Nor does he mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, He he knew about Jesus. At Stephen's execution, Stephen preached a sermon that was aimed at the hearts of the listeners. He spoke of Jesus. You can read the, the, um, the, 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 the sermon of Stephen and get it. It's there, the gospel of who Jesus is. And don't you know, that Paul heard the gospel all the time from those people he was persecuting. They may have been the best testifiers that anyone could ever imagine of Jesus. He was saying things to them, either say you don't believe in Jesus or I will kill you. And they said, no, I can't not believe in this one and who knows what they said in the context of a testimony to Paul it isn't that he couldn't have taken a multiple choice test and passed it based on what Christians believed about Jesus he wasn't saying I was ignorant in that sense but he said I I operated ignorantly in unbelief I didn't believe it and you see this lack of belief works in us to cause us to act ignorantly I must confess that I've been told countless times that eating a Snickers bar every day will cause me to gain weight, and I don't believe it. <laughs> but I stand here as testimony that it's true. <laughs> but you see, I act in, my ignorance doesn't keep me from—I can't do well just because I don't believe it. Doesn't mean I'm just not. No, I'm still responsible. Right? Who are responsible for these things. You can't say, Officer, they didn't know the speed limit. And he writes you a ticket and said, You've acted either ignorantly, you didn't know, or ignorantly in unbelief. And that is, you drove past it and you thought, He'll never stop me. Which is most often the case, isn't it? That we operate in ignorant unbelief. That we say, Oh, I see the speed limit. I know what it is. I just don't really believe it. And he stops you and he says, Oh, it's true. Right? You know, yes, I see it. And so Paul said I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't I didn't believe it. Now, anyone from his group of Pharisees would look at Paul and say, He's the best of us. But anyone with real eyes to see would realize he's the worst of us. And not only the worst in behavior and all of that, but the most miserable. What a horrible life. To be snuffing out, or trying to snuff out, that which is most important, that which is all important to human beings. It would be like spending your life trying to snuff out a cure for cancer. What a futile life. What a horrible life that would be. It may be that you think that you're doing the world a great service in that. Or you're doing all you can to snuff out world peace. It's right there. And you say, oh, I know how to stop this. What a miserable person. And that's the way that Paul was in his ignorance, his unbelief. He says, 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 I know how to stop this. I'll just kill people. I'll just imprison them. I'll separate them from their families. That'll stop this. And you say... What a horrible life that is when we have eyes really to see. And he says, God saw me in my misery. God saw me in my helplessness. I was in bondage to all of this. He saw me in my helplessness. And, 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 he, and he broke all of that in his wonderful, wonderful mercy. To me, he saw that. And, and his mercy comes in that which is most needed. He said, notice... He said, uh, I, "But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." In other words, he said, "The mercy of God came to me in the form of His grace. I was unworthy of this mercy, but I was hopeless and I was helpless, and so He poured. He overflowed, which is in Greek hyper abundance." his abundance just isn't enough and so Paul says hyperabundance it overflowed to me and what it brought to Paul was exactly what he needed what he needed was to have his ignorant unbelief reversed and so the grace of God brought faith and love Exactly what Paul needed, exactly what he lacked. He says, I was hopeless and, as, and I was helpless. I, I had heard all about Jesus. I had heard everything that was taught. and I had heard Stephen and I had heard these witnesses and all of that. And so it isn't that I didn't know. I knew, I mean, I could pass this test, but, but I didn't believe it. And, and there's a sense in which in my bondage I couldn't believe it. That's why Paul would write, I think, and God would use him to write so strongly of the impact of sin when he said we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He would say, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead in the sense that I was separated from God. And in my separation separation from God, I knew him not and could know him not. And in that image of, of death, then to life, he says, but God who is rich in mercy saw my hopelessness. He saw my helplessness. He saw my deadness. He saw that I couldn't do anything to reverse that condition. God who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ Jesus. For by grace we've been saved. His grace comes to those who are unworthy. Unworthy because of our sin. Unworthy because we deserve condemnation. Unworthy because we've rebelled against God. Unworthy because of all of that. We don't deserve it. And God says, oh, here's my grace. Because that's what you need. You need something to the unworthy. And that brings faith that you can trust me. And that brings love so you can love me. And you can love my people. So, when the grace of God comes, all that we need. Thus, Paul gives him thanks because he's now received all that he needs. It's wonderful as he knows Jesus, faith, and as he loves God and His people. He says, "This is it. This is life. This is everything. Really, I, I really could ever desire. This is it. Uh, but I hadn't. I had it not. I was, and I couldn't get it." So now I'm thankful for it. And not only that, in addition to that, of course, I've been given, appointed this place as being this apostle of Jesus. And so he has great thanks, you see. This mercy and grace. You see, we must realize that we're recipients of that as well. That we're recipients of that of that mercy. And that grace. And so Paul goes on to, to give the principle to it all. And he says, This saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul always thought himself to be the worst. No matter who he's comparing himself to, he thought himself the worst. And, and he's an apostle. And so we have to take him, I think, at his word in that sense. And so when he was writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and he was comparing himself to the other apostles, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. Of all the apostles, I'm the least of the apostles because, you see, I persecuted the church. And I've come into this apostleship as one, as he puts it, rather untimely born. You know, they were in the life of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus chose them and all that at that point in time. And I didn't come until later, but, but because I was a persecutor of the church, compare me to, to any of the other guys, and I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, he's comparing himself to all other Christians. And he says, of all of all the saints... I'm the least of all the saints. You know, it's amazing in that context of Ephesians chapter 3. It's amazing that I'm the one that God chose to carry the gospel and be the apostle. Because of all other Christians, I'm the least of all of them. And now he is comparing himself to all other sinners. And he says, "I'm, I'm I'm the very least of all of them. There's a sense in which, though, Well, this is unique to Paul and true of him. In a sense, he says, I'm the greatest sinner. I'm the record keeper. I set the record long ago. No one will ever break my record. And we read that and we go, yeah, I hear you, Paul, but I know my own life. And I can't make comparisons like he as an apostle can make comparisons. But I can say, Paul, I know how you feel. I've felt the foremost of all sinners. In fact, John Stott puts it like this. He writes, For Paul had perhaps not investigated the cr- sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully comparing himself with them and, and concluded that he was the worst of them all. The trust is rather that we are, when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It's the language of every sinner who whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. And again, that isn't some sort of negative self-esteem. That's just reality. We realize that we've sinned against God. And the good news of the gospel is that though our sin be great, God's grace overflows. God's grace is greater. It it, it can cover all of that. It, It can transform all of that. And so don't be afraid to admit it. Because as we admit it, we then... Allow the very grace of God to rush over it, and we can see him redeem all of that to not admit it to hide from it in a sense as at least consciously is, to, is to, to block if I could use that, ex- that, that term is to, is to keep out our our consciousness at least of the grace of God, and as, but as it comes and penetrates the truth of our lives, we admit it not to live there not to not, not, not to be uh, uh, morose our whole lives, but to admit it so that we can Say, yes, God's grace is sufficient, is sufficient to cover even this. Paul sees himself as the foremost of all of all sinners. The mercy and grace of God. And it comes to deal with our hopelessness, our helplessness, our unworthiness. Yes, we're not worthy, but yet he gives it to us, provides it for us. And we might be forgiven and reconciled. To God. And and Paul's thankful that's a very work of God. uh, For me, I think often of the words of of, uh, Charles Wesley in, uh, for me, a hymn that I sing all the time to myself. Um, Verse three Wesley poetically writes Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Uh, his point, he says, here I am in my sin, dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, I'm in prison. I'm in bondage to it. and I can't break out. It's dark. I can't see. I'm in prison. I'm chained up. Completely hopeless, completely helpless, but the mercy of God comes by way of his wonderful grace. And he says, here I was, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but yet God's eye diffused, as he puts it, a quickening ray, he gives life. He gives life. Life before anything else can happen, he gives life. Uh, Consistent with what Jesus taught to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. You, You need this new life. In order to see, perceive, enter into the kingdom of God, there's no entering the kingdom of heaven dead. You enter the kingdom of God alive, and you enter the kingdom of God alive because God has given you life. So you can be a citizen of the kingdom. And so he says, first, your eye diffused a quickening ray. Uh, I woke. I was dead. I woke. Uh, The dungeon was flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I think if Wesley was leading his hymn in a choir, and he got to chapter 3, he would continue to have to tell the choir, now slow down, you're going too fast on these last phrases. And they'd say, but we can't help it. You know, it, it, just, it, just, it just moves that way. My chains fell. How could you not do that fast? I mean, how could you not do... It? Because it's so joyous and so wonderful. And Paul was saying, that's it. You see, that's it. I was the worst of all sinners. And he said, I was that so that I could use my life to tell every sinner there's hope. I could use my life to tell every parent there's hope for your kids. I use my life to tell every wife there's hope for your husband or husband there's hope for your wife or children there's hope for your parents or there's hope for your friends there's hope for your neighbors Paul says, I don't care what you know about them. No one could have been in more bondage to sin than me. No one could be debtor to God than me. No one could be worse than me. No one could be more unworthy than me. But look, not only was I worse, but now I'm an apostle. Go figure. Of course, the danger is that if we're trusting ourselves, then we're trusting them. If we're trusting our kids to get it, we're trusting our spouse to get it, we're trusting our parents to get it, we're trusting our friends to get it, then we're in great straits. But Paul says, I, I, look at me. Who would have thought it would be me? So how do I explain the fact that the most foremost sinner, the greatest sinner among you is now standing before you speaking of this one Jesus? How can I, how can I tell you? And he said, well, I, I thank God because... He's the one who counted me faithful for this appointment, and I don't know why, because I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent, violent man against the church, and yet I received mercy, so why couldn't another? I received grace, so why couldn't another? And so I'm here to tell you, and all who believe, who are going to believe that, that there's hope, you see, and so God will be and is one who is in fact, is in fact patient. This particular text, this expression <clears throat> that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, has been one that has blessed Christians throughout the generations. One man in the 16th century, uh, whose name was Thomas Bilney, was one who read this passage early in his his life. He was a scholar at Cambridge, didn't know the Lord. In 1517, Erasmus had just finished his... Greek New Testament and Bilney being a scholar able to read Greek picked it up and he read this passage and here is his response to it he says but at last I heard speak of Jesus even then when the New Testament was first set forth by Erasmus. And at the first reading, as I well remember, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul in First Timothy 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all uh, men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working which I did not then perceive that is he didn't perceive the working of God he just was sitting there and he was thinking these things and he didn't necessarily perceive oh God is at work in my life that's what fakes us out you know we think we came to this all by ourselves because that's what it felt like that's what it seemed like I was just thinking I was just praying I was just reading and we have to read more and go behind the scenes and God says oh by the way and so he finally got the by the way later but he said um through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness Insomuch, And here he quotes Psalm 51 that we used as our confession this morning. He says, my bruised bones leapt for joy. Now, this carried him. 1526, he was arrested and he was made to say that he would not teach in those days the teachings of Martin Luther, which he said he would not. But then after he got out and he was teaching and preaching, he found himself very much aligned with the things of which Luther had been talking about salvation by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus. And, And so in 1526, he was arrested again. He was charged with heresy and sentenced to death. He was put in prison for a time, a year or so, in order to give him opportunity to recant, which he did. He recanted. But then we got out, and after a while again, he began to contemplate the things of God and what he had done. And he was greatly saddened by his recanting, and he began to preach again this time, because he couldn't preach in the church this time, he began to preach in the fields. And as he began to preach in the fields, after a time again in fifteen thirty one he was re arrested and recharged and retried and reconvicted of heresy, again giving him the opportunity to recant, of which now he did not. Fox lays out his last day. He writes like this he says Beyond the city gate, that known as the Bishop's gate, was a very low valley called the Lollard's Pit. It was surrounded by rising ground forming a sort of amphitheater. On Sunday, the 19th of August, that would be 1531, a body of javelin men, armed men, came to fetch Bilney, who met them at the prison gates. One of his friends approaching and exhorting him to be firm, Bilney replied, When the sailor goes on board his ship and launches out into the stormy sea, he is tossed to and fro by the waves, but the hope of reaching a peaceful haven makes him bear the danger. My voyage is beginning. But whatever storms I shall feel, my ship will soon reach the port. Bilney passed through the streets of Norwich in the midst of a dense crowd. His demeanor was grave, his features calm, his head had been shaved, and he wore a layman's gown. Dr. Warner, one of his friends, accompanied him. Another distributed alms all along the route. The procession descended into the Lollard's Pit, while the spectators covered the surrounding slopes. On arriving the place of punishment, Bilny fell on his knees and prayed, and then rising up, warm, warmly embraced the stake and kissed it. Turning his eyes toward heaven, he next repeated the Apostles' Creed, and when he confessed the incarnation and crucifixion of the Savior, his emotion was such that, that even the spectators were moved. Recovering himself, he took off his gown and ascended the pile, reciting the hundred and forty third and psalm, Thrice he repeated the second verse Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. And then he added, I stretch forth my hands unto thee, that my soul thirsteth after thee. Turning toward the officers, he said, Are you ready? Did you catch that? He said to the officers, Come on, let's get on with this. They didn't confront him. Are you ready? Yes was their reply. Bilney placed himself against the post, held up up the chain which bound him to it. His friend Warner, with eyes filled with tears, took a last farewell. Bilney smiled kindly at him and said, Doctor, to the pastor, he said, Doctor, feed your flock that when the Lord comes, he may find you so doing. Several monks who had given evidence against him, perceiving the emotion of the spectators, began to tremble and whispered to the martyr, These people will believe that we are the cause of your death and withhold their alms. Upon which Bilney said to them, Good folks, be not angry against these men for my sake, as though they be the authors of my death. It is not they. He knew that his death proceeded from the will of God. The torch was applied to the pile, The fire smoldered for a few minutes and then suddenly burning up fiercely, the martyr was heard to utter the name of Jesus several times and sometimes the word credo, that is, I believe. A strong wind which blew the flames on one side prolonged his agony. Thrice they seemed to retire from him and thrice they returned until at length, the whole pile being kindled, he expired. He knew that Christ Jesus had come into the world to save sinners of whom he was the worst. And thus he had nothing to fear. Neither do we. If we believe in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray that you would strengthen us as you have done so for those who have gone before us. Strengthen us in a way, God, that Enables us to stand firm in the midst of the knowledge of our sin. In the midst of our knowledge of your holiness and justice. In the midst of your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Because we know that your grace comes to those who are unworthy, which our sin speaks to us of. Your mercy comes to those who are hopeless and helpless, which our sin speaks to us of ourselves. And so, Father, we can stand trusting, knowing that the the Lord Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And thus we give you thanks for your mercy and your grace. Father, as a church, I pray that we would continue to be strong in this and that we would uphold this gospel, for it is exactly, precisely what the world must know. And I pray that you would overcome, Father, unbelief and this ignorance that is related to it. And Father, we pray then that more we come to know you and give evidence of your power and might. We that the gospel is not only the information concerning Christ, But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The power of God to overcome all that keeps us in bondage. So strengthen, Father, so that others can believe. And strengthen us so that we may walk in the faith. Father, give you thanks for what you're doing in the life of of our church. We thank you for last night's time together with the youth of grace. Thank you, Father. For the testimony of the kids, thank you, Father, uh, for them. And we pray that you continue to work in not only our youth program, but most especially in the lives of young people, uh, teenagers, that they may know you and walk with you, that you would overcome all that is in them by your mercy and grace that would be uh, resisting you and that they would follow you. Father, in these days, too, we... Make notice of students that are in our community. We pray for them, that you would help them in their studies, but most especially in their spiritual lives, that they too would come to know that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save them, to save sinners. Father, we pray for the work of those who are called to speak the truth of Christ. Thus, we pray for each one of us, for that is our calling to, in various ways, to speak and to live that which is true of Christ. Help us to do that. For those who are hurting on this day, I pray that you would grant mercy and grace. Father, for those who have particular hurts, that they would appeal to your mercy, that you would know their misery. Lord Jesus, sympathize with them as our faithful uh, faithful high priest and give mercy and grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Hmm. And please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.